Those are wonderful hymns to support and sustain our spirits here in the middle of the week, reminding us of the eternal realities. We're living for the day when we shall see Jesus face to face. And when we put uh, whatever struggles we're facing day to day in light of our ultimate destiny as those in Christ, the heaviest trials, Paul says, are featherweight compared to the weight of glory that we anticipate uh, when we see the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I'd invite you to open your Bibles tonight to 1 Peter chapter 4. My preaching this evening is a bit unexpected. Uh, Pastor Don is uh, still not feeling well. As many of you noticed that he was not feeling well on Sunday, and uh, he'd asked me to have grab a, grab a set of notes from, from the past to put in the back of my Bible and have ready. So that's what I did. And so that's what we have tonight uh, is, a, is a set of notes from First uh, Peter. And I'm not going to give a lot of background on the book. Back in the fall, we actually took a Tuesday evening to read through First Peter and capture some of the themes and um, I think you can find that online uh, under the title of The Gospel in Hard Times, if you'd like to get some more of the background of First Peter. The only thing I'd like to do is just point out that as we jump into an epistle, and this epistle in particular, Peter is writing to believers. And the instructions that we're going to look at this evening, it's important to keep in mind that these are instructions being given to those who are in Christ, to those who have all the resources, the abundant resources of grace that we have in Christ Jesus. And when we come to sets of instructions like this, it's just important to clarify that we depend on the Lord to carry these things out. These are not sets of instructions that are given to us to earn favor, Uh, to earn a better standing. Uh, These are simply instructions that the Lord has given to us through His apostles saying, here's how to live as a Christian. And when we understand the resources that we have as those who are in Christ, as those who are fellow heirs with Christ, and we come to passages that say, now live for God this way. It often is encouraging, it's liberating, because we begin to see in the midst of the complexity that, that seeps into our thinking because of our sinful flesh, we begin to see the simplicity of living for the Lord. And the commands in Scripture cut through our fleshly thinking, cut through uh, the the labyrinth of suffering and what do I do in these circumstances and give us clarity about the goals that we have as believers, the, the reason that we're here and the reason that we do the things that we do. We do it for the glory of God. We do it to honor the Lord. And, um, you know, I have, I have a really simple title for the message tonight. It's, it's just this, Live for God. Live for God. And this is a theme that arises over and over in the epistles. In 1 Corinthians 6 and verses 19 through 20, Paul writes, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And at the end of this passage, and we'll read the the passage in a moment in verse 11, as Peter finishes this section and is talking about serving one another in the body, he says, we do this by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Your life in Christ, your life as what Peter says as he begins the epistle as an elect alien. Did you know that in Christ you're an alien? You're an elect alien. You're a refugee in this world. 
You don't belong to this world anymore. You belong. You're a citizen of heaven. You've been chosen out of the world. And while you live in the world, you are not of the world. And so in that glorious position in Christ, your life in Christ leads to living for the glory of God here and now on this earth in your body while you're waiting for the return of Christ. This is the grand purpose of salvation, to bring glory to God. Salvation is not about you. It's about God. And while in the mercy of God and the grace of God, God has done wonderful, miraculous things in transforming us and giving us life, He did it. So that, Paul says in Ephesians 2, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved by faith. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not, a, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. The beginning of that passage, Paul says this, God saved you so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace, his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Our life in Christ is about God. Our life in Christ is about living for God. And so Peter here in 1 Peter chapter 4, as he's encouraging suffering believers and helping them think rightly about their life in Christ and how to live for Christ in the midst of the pressures of persecution, the pressures of trials of life, he says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for, the, for human passions, but for the will of God. Peter is instructing the believers, reminding them when you're in this crucible of suffering, when life becomes pressurized, it feels like a pressure cooker, and and you want to get out of the pressure, and the easy way seems to be to live for your passions, to fulfill your desires. He says, no, 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 no. Don't go that way. Think like Christ. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So the theme tonight from these first two verses, at the beginning of the passage, has two statements. Stop living passionately. And I've just spoken heresy to the whole world. I don't care. Stop living passionately. Start living purposefully. And you can expand it a little bit. Stop living passionately for yourself. Start living purposefully for God's glory. Again, verse 2 so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now let's go ahead and continue reading and read through the passage. Verse 3, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand." Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. 
Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. For whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Stop living passionately for yourself. Start living purposefully for God's glory. Let me just point out again and emphasize so we understand why Peter is writing this. The point of difficulty that he's dealing with in this passage. These people to whom he's writing are are people that have likely been had to leave their homes. They've been dispersed because of their following of Christ. They're displaced. They're facing opposition. In fact, in the next passage, in chapter 4, verse 12, Peter's going to write to them, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. These are pressured believers. They're facing suffering. They're facing perhaps even persecution. And from what we can gather in this text, it's very likely that people they know have died for the faith. You think about Peter himself. Peter in Acts chapter 12, that chapter begins by recording that Herod had killed James... And it pleased the Jews, and so he imprisoned Peter and with the same intent. But the Lord delivered Peter because he had other work for Peter to do. But James died for the faith. He died as a martyr for believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so these believers are living in pressured situations. They're, they're living in suffering, in the midst of suffering. And when we're in the midst of pressure, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of opposition, there is a temptation to turn back to living for self rather than persevering through the suffering that God has brought into our lives. And we see this often throughout Scripture, all the way back in the Pentateuch, this was the pattern of the Israelites. God delivered them. And when the going got difficult, they wanted to go back to Egypt and they wanted the leeks and onions and they they wanted the food even though they were free. And that same fleshly propensity is part of our weakness in the flesh. When When the difficulties come, there can be a looking back to what our flesh says was an easier time. Well, you know, it is easier to live for your flesh with no competition of the Spirit. But it's not the right way to think. It's not the right way to turn back to sin, to turn back to what is easy. Asaph dealt with this in Psalm 73. And let's just turn back there. This is one of those passages of Scripture that is worth being reminded of repeatedly because it is such a common struggle when we're facing difficulty. Asaph, the choir leader of Israel, he starts out in verse 1 of Psalm 73 saying, "...truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart." But then he makes this confession... In verse 2, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Right? And then he, go, he goes on to just describe the the 
human perspective of those who seem to be prospering in their wickedness and the difficulty that he as a follower of the Lord has in reconciling that for several verses. And it's not until he goes to the temple of the Lord that he, or the sanctuary of the Lord, verse 17, until I went to the sanctuary of God that I discerned their end. He had a corrected perspective. And verses 18 on detail his corrected perspective. But I just had us turn there so we can be familiar with that place of, in the Scripture and to point out the reality that this struggle, when we're pressured by suffering, when we're pressured by opposition, when we're pressured by life not going the way that we intended it to go, the way we thought it should go as we follow Christ, it's easy to slip back and to be tempted to live for our own passions. And so in the first six verses, Peter is reminding the believers to whom he writes, no, Don't live passionately. Keep stopping living passionately for human passions. Don't go back to that way of thinking. And then in verses 7 and following, he'll give us the replacement. Here's how you engage in what God has called you to do. Live purposefully for the glory of God. So let's look at in verse in the first section here let's look at the reasons some reasons to stop living passionately and instead live purposefully he starts by saying in verse 1 since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh arm yourselves with the same way of thinking and so we're looking at reasons why Well, when I'm tempted to go back to the fleshly passions, the way that I need to handle that is by thinking rightly, by having a renewed mindset. And so that's exactly what Peter Peter is telling us. He's, He's saying, arm yourselves because it's going to be a conflict You have that conflict imagery there. Arm yourselves with a certain way of thinking. How is that the the way that Christ thought when He suffered for you? Right? Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, and you're, you're a follower of Christ, and you remember what Jesus said about those who follow Christ? If you're going to come after me, you have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. So if we're followers of Christ, we need to think about Christ and we need to remember that he suffered in the flesh. And this is one of the basic foundational truths of Christianity that that we struggle with in our flesh but that makes so much of the Christian life fall into place when by God's grace we do arm ourselves with this way of thinking. We're surrounded by a culture that says life should be the way you want it to be. You're entitled to life your way. And it's easy for us to imbibe that philosophy even within within the church. And when life doesn't go our way, when our passions and desires aren't fulfilled the way that we think that they should be fulfilled, we think, what happened? Is it worth following the Lord? This is hard. Well, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. How do we do that? Well, you go back and read the Gospels. Read through the accounts leading up to the cross. Read about Christ the night before He was crucified, praying, struggling in prayer with the Father. 
and ultimately, not my will, but thy will. He was absolutely committed to carrying out the will of the Father. He came to die. He told us in John chapter 10 that he was going to lay down his life. He voluntarily laid down his life for his sheep. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. The surprising part of the Christian life should not be when we're suffering. The surprising part of the Christian life should be when things are going well and easy. Christ came to suffer. You arm yourself in the same way. Peter makes an interesting statement at the end of verse 1. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Some people look at this as referring to those who have been persecuted and they suffered and died and therefore they're completely free from sin. And, and that Peter is arguing, he's, he's kind of putting that in a parenthetical sense and saying, arm yourselves with this way of thinking because that ultimately is our goal, isn't it? To be with the Lord. And those who suffered by persecution, they don't, they don't deal with sin any, anymore. So it's not a death wish, but why would you begrudge suffering if it's going to be the very thing that brings you into the presence of God? Right? That's, that's one potential way of thinking about it. Uh, another uh, potential interpretation is, is simply that he's saying you, you think this way, so that as you endure suffering, it demonstrates that you are someone who has ceased living for sin. As you endure suffering, the blessing from the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are you when men persecute you, right? That's true of you. You're enduring suffering. The fact that you're enduring suffering is evidence that you've armed yourself with the same way of thinking that Christ had, and so you've ceased living for sin. But regardless, the, the emphasis is that as God brings suffering into our lives, He's told us exactly where to look. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in some way, shape, or form, whichever way you want to go with the interpretation, in some way, shape, or form, the suffering that God has brought into your life is a sanctifying part of God's plan. There's a sanctifying element that is taking place. So why do we stop living passionately? Well, first of all, because Christ suffered for us. He didn't suffer for us to follow our passions. He didn't suffer for us to live however we want to live. No, He suffered to redeem us and to conform us into His image. And so we begin by looking at Christ. We begin by looking at the cross. Verse 2, Peter goes on. He says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking Verse 2, so as to live the rest of the time in your flesh no longer for human passions, no longer for the desires of your heart, but for the will of God. So the second reason is that it's God's will. It's God's will that we not live passionately for our human passions. It's God's will that we live for Him that we follow His Word, that we engage in His priorities, that we make what's important to Him important to us, and that does not go along with following human passions. 
living for human passions and living for the will of God are mutually exclusive. And so, as someone sharing in the inheritance of Christ, stop living for your passions. Start living purposefully for God's glory because it's His will. It's very interesting how often that statement, the will of God, is used to rationalize passions. Right? There's a wrong way of thinking about God's will. And it usually starts with, with a question, you know, what's God's will for my life? And it's like, you know, what career path should I take? Who should I marry? Those kinds of questions. What decision should I make in a, in a certain, certain situation? And then it'll be, well, I'm, I'm praying about it until I have a peace about it, and now I know it's God's will. Well, how do you know? I mean, did you see a vision? Or what? But often, it's just a pietistic way of saying, I'm going to follow my passion, and I've convinced myself it's God's will. And here, Peter is making an argument, no, 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 no. Human passions and God's will are mutually exclusive. You say, well, how do I know what God's will is to live for that? Well, well, Peter's going to fill that out for us later on. But when you come to Scripture and you find statements like the will of God, what you'll find is that it's referring to what God has already revealed, it's, it's, not, it's not a matter of discerning something that is vague and in the future. It's a matter of obedience to what God has already revealed. And so when Peter is saying, stop living for human passions and start living for the will of God, it's, it's another way of just saying, be obedient to what God has said. Form your thinking, frame your thinking according to what God's Word has said and not according to what you want. Not according to what you want life to look like, but according to what God has called you to do to obey Him. That's how you need to think. We stop living passionately for ourselves. We start living purposefully for God's glory because Christ has suffered for us because it's God's will. And again, we're going to flesh out exactly what that is talking about. But then there's another reason in verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for you to do what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. Another reason is very simply because you've already wasted enough time. You've already wasted enough time. For the time past suffices for what the Gentiles want to do. This is one of those verses that when you stop and begin to think about your life before Christ, think even about life in Christ when you've made fleshly decisions, and you start to think about that time past that suffices for doing what the Gentiles wanted to do and how you were duped in darkness to live that way and how your rejection of God, how your constant breaking of His law by not having... by, by not making Him the God of your life by living according to what you wanted, by rejecting His authority, led to the flood of debauchery that He's talking about. It might have been a moral type of debauchery. It might have been all the heinous sins that you can imagine. 
But regardless, it was all rebellion against God. It was all driven by your human passions. It was driven by your desire maybe to gain your own righteousness or your desire to live as rebellious as you could. But either way, it was an affront to God. And Peter says, look, let's just think back and realize how much time we already wasted of the precious life that God gave to us living for our human passions. So why would you want to go back there? You've wasted enough time in rebellion against God. Start living for God. Stop living for your passions. He notes that in verse 4, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. You There's a pressure sometimes from former acquaintances, former revelers in sin. Say, come on, let's go have some fun. No, I don't live that way anymore. And they malign you for that. That's okay. You're not living for them anymore. You're living for the God who redeemed you. You already wasted enough time. Live for the Lord. In verse 5, Peter picks up by saying, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. What he does in those two verses is point us to eternity. So the reason here is because of eternity. Stop living for your passions. Start living purposefully for the glory of God because of eternity. The reality that the wicked will be held accountable in eternity for their wickedness. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And so he's helping us think. Do, you, do we see what, what he's doing? Back in verse 1, he said, Christ suffered in the flesh, so arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. And he's helping us to think. Don't waste time. You've, you've already wasted enough time living in this way, living in debauchery, living in idolatry, fulfilling the de- desires of your flesh. And, and in, the, in this life right now, in the weakness of the flesh, it looks like those who continue to pursue that, they're prospering, they're doing well, they're having a good time. But his call is now, but you need to look beyond that. You need to look beyond the good time. You need to look beyond the beer commercials. You need to look beyond the, the, the parties. You need to look beyond the pursuit of wealth and power. You need to look beyond the, the airbrushed, artificial good times that the, that the world puts in front of you. And you need to understand that the people that are giving themselves to, to these pursuits, they are going to stand before Jesus Christ and all that they've gained, whether it's athletic prowess whether it's political power, whether it's wealth, it means nothing. It means nothing in the day of judgment. You've got to look beyond that. You've got to live for eternity because the people that are maligning you, the people that are pointing their finger at you and saying how stupid you are, one day they're going to stand and they're going to be accountable before the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the view you need to have. That's reality. That's thinking according to Christ. Think according to eternity. On the other side of that, in verse 6, He says, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who were dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. And he's referring in that verse to 
those who trusted in Christ and likely died for their faith. The gospel was preached to those who have already died. That although they were judged in the flesh, perhaps by the same malicious people, ultimately they were living for God. They were living in the Spirit. They were living for spiritual things. You live for eternity. The, help, the wicked are going to be held accountable. The righteous will live in completed redemption. And he's pointing, he's pointing believers to that reality and saying, look, you, you might endure some persecution. You might endure being maligned by friends and by family for the way that you're living right now. But there's a day coming when the fullness of the gospel will be ultimately consummated in your life and you're going to be no longer in this body. You're going to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. And you need to think about that day. And I'm reminding you that there are people who lived that way while they were on earth. The gospel was preached to those who are now dead and now they're with the Lord. Hebrews 11 the great hall of fame of faith, it ends by talking about those who have been persecuted by their faith. And then the writer of Hebrews says, okay, now look at that cloud of witnesses. Those who have gone before and ultimately look to Christ and lay aside the sin. Lay aside the sin. Remember those that have gone before and that have received the fullness of the promise. And Peter is essentially saying the same thing. Live for eternity. Live for eternity. And then a final reason transitions us into the next section. Verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Because Christ's return is imminent. What are the reasons that we Stop living passionately and start living purposefully. Well, because Christ suffered for you, because it's God's will, because you already wasted enough time, because of eternity, and because Christ's return is imminent. It, it can come at any time. The, the, the end of all things is at hand. So be self-controlled and sober-minded. So we've looked at some reasons. Let's now move to the actions. How do I put this into practice? How do I, how do I move away from a mindset or from an emotional way of living that says, live for the here and now, live for what feels good, live for what you want to do, live for what you're entitled to have. How do I move away from that passionate type way of living and, and live purposefully for the glory of God? Well, again, remember I said we're, we're going to look at what, what is God's will. Well, these next few verses tell us what God's will is. We have specific directions for living for the glory of God. God doesn't say, you know, glorify me and go figure out what that means. I'll glorify me and I'm going to tell you what that looks like. I'm going to give you direction so that as you live in this life, as you live on this fallen planet, as you deal with the flesh, you have clarity about how to structure your thinking according to the gospel so that your life brings honor and glory to my name. And it's really, really important that we don't stop with, you know, don't live this way and just stop there. Empty the house, so to speak. We need to fill it. Jesus talks about the emptied house in Matthew chapter 12 and verses 43 and following. And, you know, the house gets cleaned, but there's no restructuring. And the demon leaves and brings seven more, more wicked than himself, back and creates all kinds of chaos. So this isn't about just don't do this and get, get things cleaned up. No, there's an active way to bring glory to God. There's a, a restructured way of life that replaces what used to be living for your passions, now you're living for the purpose of glorifying God. 
So what are some of those actions? Well, verse 7 is pretty clear. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So the first action here is exercise self-control so that you can pray. The end of all things is at hand. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. I wonder if anyone's ever struggled to pray in this room, or am I the only one? Peter struggled to pray. You, you almost wonder if this is in his mind back in the Garden of Gethsemane when he kept falling asleep, couldn't stay awake to pray. And he's reminding us that prayer, prayer is something that requires some effort. Be sober-minded and self-controlled. And the idea between being, so, being sober or behind being sober-minded and self-control is that I'm thinking according to the realities. What are the realities? Well, the end of all things is at hand. Okay, now, now let's just think about that reality for a moment. What does it mean if the end of all things are at hand? Well, it means that at any time, I might be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. At any time, before the, before the service is over, I might be in the presence of Jesus Christ. It, it might be all over. It's imminent. Think about your life right now. How comfortable would you be in the presence of Christ? And, I, and I'm, not, I'm not putting this in a, in a sense to, to lay a legalistic form of unnecessary guilt. Right? We're complete in Christ. We're complete in His righteousness. But in the next letter, Peter's going to say, because Christ is coming, you also need to be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace. So the end of all things is at hand. The reality is that some or all of us could be in the presence of Christ before the evening is out. Are we living for Christ? Will we be found at peace? When the Word of God is preached, are we, are we dealing with what the Spirit of God is convicting us about? Are we turning away from sin? Are we turning toward righteousness? Are we being faithful in our prayer for those we love? Are we living for Christ? There's no guarantee of tomorrow. The end of all things is at hand. That's, that's the reality. So be self-controlled. Right? Don't live for human passions. Be self-controlled and be sober-minded. Think according to those realities for the sake of your prayers. So when I stop in this very fast-paced world that we live in, what did we do? We took maybe two or three minutes, I don't know, and just thought for a moment, what does it mean that the end of all things is at hand. And, and in just a couple minutes, all of a sudden, we got kind of sober, didn't we? Because that's weighty. And that needs to inform my prayers. And the, the weightiness that Christ could come, the weightiness that my life can end at any time, according to God's decree. Let that weight sink in for the sake of your prayers. Exercise self-control so that you can pray. When the spiritual realities that are given to us in the Word of God start to sink into our souls and we respond to the Lord in prayer, Right, that, that takes the self-control of 
reading the Scriptures, of meditating on the Scriptures, of thinking scripturally, and allowing that to inform our prayers. Prayer is much more than just saying, you know, I I just feel like praying this at this moment. The disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. There's intentionality behind it. And oftentimes as we allow the spiritual realities that the Word of God sets forth to sink into our souls, there's an intensity that grows as well. This is my lifeline. I need the Lord. People around me need the Lord. Oh, Lord God, your kingdom come. Your will be done. Well, he goes on. Verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. We exercise self-control so we can pray. We earnestly love so that we can forgive. Above all, keep on loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. That tells me some things. If he has to say, keep on loving one another, it probably means that I won't want to. And then he says earnestly. So what does this mean? You know, we, we think earnestly, it, you know, it's kind of like, okay, do I like have to generate a feeling? Oh, I love this person. Come on. I, you know, I, I love this person. <laughs> I'm trying to generate this. You know, what, what is earnestly? Well, the, the idea behind that particular word is actually, it's not, it's not like generating uh, some kind of an emotional feeling. It's actually maintaining an unwavering perseverance of interest and devotion. Maintaining an unwavering perseverance of interest and devotion. And, and the, the challenge is right here in the verse. Why, why is this? Why does he have to tell us this? Well, because love covers a multitude of sins. The implication is there are going to be some sins that I'm going to have to cover. And in order to do that, in order to do that, I have to have an, a, a, a commitment of love that is unwavering in its perseverance of interest and devotion to the body of Christ. Right? When we think about, when we think about what he's saying here, we, we have to go back to chapter one and remember, well, thank the Lord I have all these riches in Christ because I'm sure going to need them to love like that. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. And turn over to Ephesians chapter 5, at the end of chapter 4, and, and beginning of chapter 5, just to, I think Paul fills this out a little bit for us. In verse 31 of chapter 4, Paul here again is doing something very similar that Peter's doing. He's telling us how life in Christ works itself out. And so in verse 31, he says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So, similar idea, we have to intentionally put away bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor. We have to intentionally be kind to one another. We have to intentionally be tenderhearted. We have to intentionally forgive one another. And the benchmark is, as Christ forgave you. And he goes on, and verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5 are an extension of that in verse in chapter 4 therefore be imitators of god as beloved children and the picture that he's giving is that you are so beloved by god you have so much love from god 
It's, it's the kind of love that a sovereign has for his only son who's going to take his throne. That's how beloved you are of God. So don't worry about forgiving someone else, you know, because that's hard to do. I feel insecure if I forgive. I feel vulnerable if I forgive. Yes, but you're beloved by God. So be an imitator of God in your forgiveness. Verse 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So what does it look like to keep on loving one another fervently? Well, it looks like Christ who loved us and gave himself up for us. The picture is the cross. The picture is the cross. And so behind verse 8 in 1 Peter chapter 4 is the cross. Behind the perseverance and behind the, the, the unwavering perseverance of interest and devotion and the face even of when I'm sinned against is the cross. Giving myself up as Christ gave himself up in love. We exercise self-control so we can pray. We earnestly love so that we can forgive. Verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Extend hospitality out of contentment. Right? Be joyful in the opportunities to serve other people and opening the home and in the New Testament first century context in particular, you would have refugees that have been cast out for their faith in Christ and believers would take one another in. And Peter's saying this is part of our, of our life in Christ that we exercise hospitality and, and it's not the, the hospitality that, you know, as we're cleaning up, it's like, oh, I've got to do this again. Hey, how's it going? It's good to see you here today. Right, the, the word grumbling actually has the idea of behind-the-scenes talk. You, know, you exercise hospitality out of contentment in Christ. And then lastly, Peter gives us a general instruction about the giftedness that we have as believers. In verses 10 and 11, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God, and whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. It's interesting that as the New Testament Letters get later in date. The listing of spiritual gifts grows smaller and less prescriptive. And here, Peter just gives us two categories. He says, look, if you're in Christ, you've received gifts from the Lord. Right? You see that in verse 10? As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. So in the body of Christ, in the local church, everyone has a spiritual gift. Everyone's gifted. And we're gifted for the purpose of serving one another, of serving the body of Christ. That's why we have these spiritual gifts. And then Peter goes on and he, and he identifies two categories the category of those who speak and the category of those who serve. Verse 11, whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God and whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. And, and in both of those categories, he defines how we serve. Whoever speaks, he says, needs to speak as one who speaks the oracles of God. Very simply, that means saying what God says the way God says it, right? Being diligent to study the Word of God and to proclaim the Word of God, to proclaim what God has said the way God says it. Sometimes there has to be firmness and forcefulness 
Exhortation, calling people to repentance. Sometimes there are passages that are filled with comfort and kindness and encouraging those who are downhearted. But regardless, saying what God says the way that God has said it for the building up of the body of Christ. And then those who are called to serve in many different capacities, serving not in their own strength, but serving with a recognition that the energy they have, the strength they have and they need for their service and whatever capacity it might be is not of their own generation, it's from God. They're serving from the strength that God supplies And so both those who speak and those who serve, it's speaking what God has said. It's depending on God's word. It's serving with the strength that God supplies, depending on God's strength. And so as the body is built up in love, as the body is built up for the glory of God, that's exactly what happens so that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. It's important, I think, to note that the directions for our spiritual gifts come after the instructions to put aside our human passions. Those don't go together. Remember? So as to not live for human passions, but for the will of God. What's God's will? Well, God's will is that you pray God's will is that you love earnestly. God's will is that you exercise joyful hospitality. God's will is that you use the gifts that he's given to you to build up his church so that he will be glorified through Jesus Christ through the one who saved you, through the one who's given you the gifts, through the one you have the abundance of riches. Because to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. One day we're going to stand before the Lord. And you know, I, I just shudder personally to think about that day of accounting. I'm so thankful for God's mercy and grace. And I know that my righteousness and my acceptance before him is fully and complete in Christ. I have, I have no quandary, no doubt about that. But Paul talks about our works being judged by fire. And, and what, a, what a travesty it would be if we took the resources, the life that we have in Christ and lived for the passions of the flesh. Lived for the passions of the world. When God has given all of this to us, all the spiritual strength, all the spiritual resources that that we have in Christ, everything that we need beyond what we could ask or imagine, so that we won't waste our life living for our passions, but for His glory. And it's important, as the epistles do so often, it's important for us to move our minds to that day when we stand before the Lord. Right? And and we look at we look at our life right now in light of in light of the passage we've looked at tonight, in light of what God has done for us. Look at our life right now and, and ask ourselves the questions, Lord. Am I living for your glory? Am I living purposefully? Or am I living for my passions? We might not even need to ask the question. We might already know. And so by God's grace, even if we're in that pressure cooker of suffering, a pressure cooker of trials, the pressure cooker of persecution, of uncertainty, of life not looking like we want it to, Lord, help me to arm myself, as you've instructed me right here. Help me to arm myself with the same way of thinking that characterized Christ. 
so that I can carry out the glorious instructions that you've given so that I can carry out your will for your glory and look forward to standing before you and being with you for eternity. Father, we thank you tonight for the Word of God. Thank you for your apostles, for Peter, who you inspired to write these things for our instruction. And we thank you for using and redeeming vessels like him that showed your grace and your mercy and your patience. It's such an encouragement to us that you are indeed long-suffering and patient. We thank you that you do love us. And we thank you that you've given to us all things that we need for life and godliness. And so, Lord, may we be joyful in receiving your word and in living for your glory. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening from Truth Community Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can find more church information and other helpful materials at thetruthpulpit.com, teaching God's people God's Word. This message is copyrighted, all rights reserved.